Hi and welcome. I'm really excited today about this topic. It combines my two favorite subjects, history and linguistics. We're talking with Dr. Mark Sundaram. He did medieval studies with a focus on language and linguistics, and in particular, historical medieval linguistics. Isn't that incredible? And I can't forget to mention that he's the other co-host at the podcast called The Endless Knot. Some of you might find that name familiar because I did do a podcast with his wife, Dr. McMaster, on Greek and Roman sexuality. And as you know, in this podcast, we talk to academics, students, scholars, enthusiasts, and so many more. You might have noticed that not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Now let's deep dive into some linguistic history, hey? Eh? say thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And I'll let you present your topic because I know you're quite passionate about this topic. <laughs> uh, so I'll be talking about the history of the English language and how the history of the language is very much tied to the history of England and how that sort of grows. Perfect. I guess we can start with the actual beginning. <laughs> so like, what is language? You know, what are we defining? Uh, you know, this is, a, a at the moment, a very kind of highly debated topic as to where it comes from and how it sort of established itself. Some linguists argue that it goes very far back, even farther back than Homo sapiens. And the other big argument is, did it develop once or did it develop multiple times in different places? Um, or was it something that was spread? Some even argue that it was invented as a kind of social tool to facilitate our kind of complex social interactions with each other. But all of that can only be studied indirectly because writing was invented much later than language itself. So we can go back in terms of studying the specifics of any language a little bit beyond what the earliest written records are through a process called comparative linguistics. So you can look at a whole bunch of really early writings and if you establish that two languages are related, you can kind of make a guess at what the language that they both derive from might look like. Like a root. Like a root, yeah. And so for English, we know that English comes from a very large family called the Indo-European language. And we can do a reasonable job at reconstructing what Proto-Indo-European, from which all Indo-European languages came from, what it probably was like. I mean, again, it's hypothetical reconstruction. We don't have any written records of that. But English is in that large family, which includes all kinds of languages from Europe and from India, uh, from around the Middle East, various places like that. So English comes from a particular branch of the Proto-Indo-European languages, the Germanic branch, uh, which existed mainly in northern Europe. Basically, Proto-Indo-European was sort of around the steppes. That's where it, it had its beginnings, and then it sort of spread outwards from there. So the northernmost branch of that kind of just stayed up there where it was cold and kind of moved westward to, you know, areas like northern Europe, Germany, Scandinavia, and eventually uh, England. 
And by saying Germanic, some people might confuse that with Germany now, Mm -hmm. but it does have some roots, as you've said. Yeah. So Germany, the country, and the German language, modern German, is one of many Germanic languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're all related, but that family includes Scandinavian languages like Norwegian and Danish and Swedish. It includes as well Dutch, and it includes English language. So the Romans also spoke a language from the uh, Indo-European family, Latin. Um, And from Latin, a bunch of other European languages evolved, like French and Spanish, uh, Italian, um, Portuguese, Romanian. And they had a close relationship geographically. Yes. So there were some borings maybe at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened is the Roman Empire spread quite widely, obviously. Uh, they, They had a very large empire and very many parts of uh, the world at that time. And one of the areas they moved into out of Italy uh, is France, what we would now call France. They called it Gaul at the time. And there was a number of different languages spoken in those regions, including Celtic languages and some Germanic languages. And so the local versions of Latin after the fall of the empire as sort of became fragmented and there was no longer as much kind of communication across a wide network. Uh, Each region developed their own slightly different version of Latin and over time it became various different languages Mm -hmm. and the language French was particularly influenced by uh, this Frankish language, this Germanic Frankish language. So there's a bunch of you know words that are very closely related to German or as well as some Scandinavian languages in French. Rather than Latin. Rather than Latin. I mean, a lot of the Latin survived, but there's a particular bunch of words that came not from Latin, but from, you know, local languages. And then the Romans, since you've mentioned them, so their empire spread quite widely. Yes. And before it scattered, it had some influence. Or should we maybe start with Britain itself, how language ended up there? So you mentioned the Celts earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the Celts, they actually aren't even the first people that we know of to be there. The Celtic peoples, the Celtic languages, all really had their start in kind of Eastern Europe, and they spread out from there. Uh, So there was some pre-Celtic people. We know very little, well, we know nothing about what their language would have been, uh, but we can tell archaeologically that it was a different culture that was there, uh, and they were eventually replaced by Celtic peoples uh, who came to be referred to by the Romans as the Britons, um, and they called that landmass, that, you know, series of islands, Britain. Mm -hmm. So it was a Roman province. Once the Romans expanded to that, uh, the people there were speaking Celtic languages, but they were conquered over a number of years uh, by the Romans, and it became a Roman province, and they were pretty well established there for a while, until the fall of the empire, and they didn't have the resources to defend such a large empire, so they tended to pull back their troops from the margins until the empire completely collapsed in the West, anyways. And so that left these partially Romanized Celtic peoples in Britain, who for a while still thought of themselves as kind of Roman, even though they didn't have any direct relationship to any kind of Roman authority anymore. And over time, that influence or that memory of being culturally Roman was never necessarily really complete, of course. The people still, you know, had their own native traditions, mm-hmm. um, so they were partially Romanized, not necessarily fully so. Uh, but over time, even that partial kind of idea of being part of Roman culture disappeared as well. So they became Celtic again, yeah. but a different version of the Celtic that we mm-hmm. had before. Yeah, but through the Romans, they became Christianized, 
Um, and so there, there was always some form of Christianity somewhere in the British Isles. But around that very same time, related to the, uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire, there were uh, numerous what the Romans called barbarian tribes invading, and a lot of them were Germanic. Some of those Germanic uh, peoples came to Britain. So Germanic being, they weren't on the island. They weren't on the island yet. In the yeah. other parts of Europe. They were, they were in Northern Europe, you know, places that we would associate with modern Germany or modern Denmark, those kinds of areas. Some of them headed to Britain, but a lot of them invaded other parts of the empire. So the Franks, for instance, ended up uh, in the region that we now call France, mm -hmm. hence the linguistic influences there. Uh, but they also, they made it as far as Portugal. So there are some Germanic influence in a lot of the Germanic languages. Different groups kind of went to different areas, but... Um, so then you end up in Britain with Germanic people. Yes. And this is one of the big debates. How many people actually came to Britain. And it, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. People have tried to use, uh, you know, things like DNA evidence, um, but... And the written sources, like written, yeah, There's not a lot or... of written... There are some written... Yeah. Well, Tacitus is a bit early. Okay. Um, so he's right. He wrote about the Germanic peoples, but well before they came, they moved into uh, Britain. Bede is a bit late. Okay. There's one. There's one writer uh, who gives us a near contemporary account of this, and that's uh, Gildas. He's he's a, a Briton, a Welsh writer, basically, uh, writing in Latin. So he thought of himself as kind of Roman. His level of Latin showed that at that time, anyways, there was still a reasonable you know level of education in old Roman. Uh, education in terms of rhetoric and writing style. So he was well-educated. He was a churchman. And he wasn't setting out to write specifically a history or a contemporary account. His main purpose was a religious polemic. So he was saying, look, you're all being sinful and, you know, this is God's punishment, all these invaders. These barbarians. These barbarians, <laughs> yeah. But he gives us uh, a pretty good near-contemporary account. He says he was born in the year of a very famous battle called the Battle of Mount Baden, uh, which is has later been connected to all the King Arthur legends. But it, it's a major victory for the Britons against these various Germanic invaders. And so we don't know exactly where or when that battle was fought, but we know from various sources that it was an actual battle. It's probably early 6th century, maybe as early as late 5th century, I would guess around 500 or a little bit later. And so that's approximately when he was born. We don't know his birthday other than that statement, but we can kind of guess that it was around then. He was writing about the arrival of these Germanic peoples and how they were despoiling the land and causing much terror and all of this sort of thing. And uh, so he's writing about events that happened just before his time. So, you know, within a generation or two of his life. And we can rely reasonably well on that evidence. You know, it, he's not very far removed from the actual events themselves. And these peoples invaded Britain mm -hmm. and they brought culture and language. And at this point, I guess things change again. Yes. So the first thing to remember is those Germanic peoples were not a unified group. There are a lot of little tribes, a lot of little groups coming over. They didn't have one authority or anything like that. So we've identified a number of the tribes, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, um, but probably other groups as well. There were probably some Frisians as well. 
maybe some other tribes that we don't specifically have identified, but there were a lot of little tribes that came over and settled or invaded different parts of Britain. So some of them came to the south, you know, around Kent. Some of them, you know, came more to the north in Anglia or as far north as Northumbria. And they sort of slowly spread out from there. But they didn't form one kingdom. So, you know, in those early years, we're looking at a bunch of separate kingdoms um, with their own kings, their own sort of traditions, their own slightly different cultures, and their own slightly different forms of a Germanic language that eventually comes to be Old English. So there's a lot of linguistic variety going on. Of course, the Celtic peoples don't exactly go away. I mean, there are many people living there. From the account that we have, for instance, from Gildas and others, um, they kind of were pushed further and further west as uh, the Germanic peoples arrived in the east. Which is why, to this day, Celtic languages survive mostly in the, the sort of western part of the British Isles. And the north as well. The first place they arrived is sort of in the uh, southeast, and you can sort of see them radiating out from there. So, Wales... The Welsh language is a Celtic language that's far to the west. Uh, Cornwall, uh, Cornish language, which is now extinct, but only fairly recently. Um, again, it's on the, the west coast. Uh, and Ireland, of course, very, very much farther uh, to, to the west on a separate island. Uh, and yes, to the, to the north, uh, the Scots. Um, and the Hebrides on the west. And the Hebrides, though a lot of that was kind of repopulated by Celtic speakers, mm-hmm. Irish kind of move back into that area. Um, That's debated. Yeah, it's a bit debated, <laughs> but... Uh, Depends on what you read. <laughs> yeah. So scholars have historically referred to these various disparate groups collectively as Anglo-Saxons, but this isn't how they refer to themselves. So this is a modern invention that really, you know, begins in the 17th century. There was a kind of term like that in Latin that was used, but it was never used in English, certainly. Uh, they would just call themselves the English or the Anglican. They thought of themselves as a cohesive group? Not at first. Not at first. No, and in fact, arguably not for a long time. They became politically united for a while towards the end of that period, what, again, historically scholars are referred to as the Anglo-Saxon period, though that term is now not being used anymore. Uh, There's been a big push to not use that term because uh, it has racist connotations. As you mentioned, there's other groups. There are other groups, so it's not accurate. It's not historically accurate. It's not the term that they use to refer to themselves. Mm -hmm. And the term is also used for very racist purposes. So uh, the field is now kind of going through a process of renaming itself. You know, early medieval England is the, the kind of better term to use. So if you read old books, it's Anglo-Saxon. They're going to say Anglo-Saxon, but but scholars today, uh, many of them anyways, don't want to refer to themselves as Anglo-Saxonists because Mm. that implies that they're racists, uh, white supremacists. So yeah, early medieval English scholars is kind of a better term to use. That's good to know. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, around the time, starting from around the time of one particular king, King Alfred the Great, he was a king of one of these kingdoms, Wessex, and only Wessex. But it was around that time that they started being invaded by another Germanic group, different Germanic group this time, uh, from farther north, uh, the Scandinavians, primarily the Danes and, and Norwegians. 
so a lot of the kingdoms, except for Wessex, one by one, all the other kingdoms fell to these Viking invaders. And Wessex itself almost fell. Uh, at one point, King Alfred was sort of on the run, but he slowly clawed his way back and started to reconquer various regions one by one. And that process was continued by his descendants, uh, who, again, also sort of conquered more land and more land. And so eventually it all came under control. During Alfred's lifetime, uh, the, you know, he was able to say he was king of all the English that wasn't part of the Dane law, the part of the country where the Danes and Vikings had under their control. So that went beyond Wessex. But eventually Athelstan and some of his, his other sort of descendants managed to pretty much get the entire country under one king. So that didn't happen until, you know, quite late, and it didn't last for very long, because still there were Scandinavian invasions trying to take over the country, uh, and for a while there was even one Scandinavian king who was king over all that previous, uh, you know, all those other kingdoms. They all came under one Scandinavian king, so King Knut. He's Scandinavian, he's a Dane, uh, but he was king of England, effectively. But eventually, the Scandinavians were finally fully defeated. There was no more claims to the English throne, which now you could consider one king. Though, even with one king politically, the peoples didn't always feel that they were a people, right? So they knew that King Alfred's uh, successors were, you know, this is a line of West Saxon kings. Well, they don't speak for us, say, you know, someone in Northumbria or whatever. And so there was always a tension there. Linguistically, King Alfred, what he spoke or what he wrote... Was West Saxon. Was West Saxon. We and now refer to it as Old English, or a, a dialect of Old English, if you want. So that's what we know nowadays as Old English. That's we don't what we know, know the yeah. other ones so much? Not as much, because not as much was written down, or at least not as much survived. So there was a, a lot of literary production earlier in the north, in Northumbria, uh, until the Viking raids. A lot of that got burned. They were in the churches, the Vikings came and sacked the churches for their wealth, and a lot of those books were just destroyed. So there's some surviving material from other parts of England, you know, a little bit from, from the north, a little bit from Kent, a little bit from the Midlands. All of these little pieces, can we have an idea of how different the languages were, if there were different dialects or just completely different languages? They were quite different. It was close enough that someone from Wessex and someone from Northumbria could understand each other. But we can look at the texts, and there's a lot of differences. The vowels are kind of different. Um, you know, forms of words were slightly different. There was even some difference in terms of uh, the, the sort of grammatical endings of words. So they were distinct. Distinct enough that, you know, you wouldn't confuse one for the other, but probably close enough that they wouldn't have had too much problem understanding each other. They didn't talk about translators helping translate between them. No, so. though you can detect that translation happening anyways. If a scribe is copying from a manuscript that's not in his dialect, he might recopy it with a mixture of the original text and his own version of the language. Uh, that did happen. Um, but yeah, most of the surviving text that we have is from Wessex, in large part because of the efforts of King Alfred. He started a literacy program. He wanted all freeborn men to be literate, which at that time was quite remarkable. And he sent his daughter to learn to be literate also. Yes, he? yeah, she was educated and also a good tactician, as it turns out. So uh, she also commanded some of the troops. She was married in a sort of political alliance, but eventually she, in Mercia, and so she was the lady of the Mercians. 
she oversaw the defenses in her part of the country from, you know, Scandinavian Viking attack. She was, you know, pretty good tactician. Even though she'd mostly defeated the Vikings, she's still one of my favorites. <laughs> so yeah, because of this literacy program, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of text was produced, and that's what mostly survives of Old English. And if we look at Old English, do we see some of the Scandinavian influences yet, or does that happen later? Well, we don't see it all that much in West Saxon. Mm -hmm. But from looking at the text that does survive from other parts of the country, especially uh, Northumbria and Anglia, there we can start to see some of the Scandinavian influence in the language. And how different was the Scandinavian languages and Old English? That's more different. So mutual sort of understanding would have been a bit tougher. I mean, they're both Germanic languages, so the roots kind of look the same, but all the endings were different. You know, the vocabulary was often quite different. Is it as different as Scandinavian languages today and English today? Would it have been Maybe a little not quite closer? as far as that. It'd be more like saying, you know, the difference between Scandinavian language and modern German, perhaps. Because English had a lot of other changes that we'll, happened. We'll talk later, about which that, we'll I get guess. To, but, yeah. So it's one of the reasons why Old English became Middle English is because in the north of England, you have people who are native speakers of some form of Old English uh, and some speakers of Old Norse. And so because they had to try and communicate with each other, a lot of grammatical things about the language simplified, and which is one of the reasons that modern English is, uh, in terms of the grammatical forms, a lot simpler than Old English. Old English is much more like, you know, learning Old English is like learning a Scandinavian language or, mm -hmm. or, you know, a foreign language for us. So the Middle English then became another form of English, and that's why they've chosen another name for it. It's yes. had an evolution. It has a pretty sharp evolution due to pressures from two languages. So there's Old Norse, uh, but then a little later on, there's the influence of French, specifically uh, Norman French. Uh, because another invasion, as soon as they finally managed to get the country safe from Scandinavian invasion, like that same year, we get an invasion from the Normans. French Vikings. The French Vikings, yeah. So they're called Normans because they're it's Norsemen or Northmen. Uh, they were originally Vikings too, who came and raided the north of France repeatedly. And eventually Charles, the French king, decided to... Uh, I think probably a clever move. He ceded the land and said, okay, you can stay, but now you have to defend this area from other Vikings, which is, you know, it's a good good solution to it's the problem. It's a different tactic. It's a different tactic, yeah. I mean, it's giving up land, but on the other hand, it's no longer his problem. So the strange thing is that these Normans, these Vikings, uh, you know, eventually gave up their language. They spoke French, though a French heavily influenced by Old Norse. So there's a lot of vocabulary that kind of came into French at that point. And these Normans eventually came to England because of a, and, and this is where it gets, you know, very political, depending on who you're asking. And who's writing the history. And who's writing the history. <laughs> yeah. Supposedly a promise was made to uh, William the Conqueror, before he was the Conqueror, William the Bastard, as he was called because he so nicely yeah <laughs> it's actually a statement about his yeah. legitimacy he, you know he, he was not a legitimate child of his mm -hmm. father but a promise was supposedly made to him that he would inherit the throne and likely that's true but many people particularly the sort of the nobles in uh in england at that time didn't want a king coming from outside like that and so they kind of elected one of their own you know there's a precedent for that king's are elected, really, in that time, in that culture. Um, it wasn't necessarily hereditary. 
and so the king had to be approved by the by the sort of council of nobles Wittenjamot um, basically means the meeting of the wise people or whatever the counselors so there's a Scandinavian claim to the throne because again of a promise that was made a treaty that was made and then the local uh, Harold Godwinson who they elected king uh, and he managed to rebuff the Danish attack and then had to march straight back down to the south to uh, face the Norman attack, which he lost. And he died in that battle, and including many of the nobility in England at the time, leaving a, a vacuum that William was able to take advantage of and you know install all his own people in important positions. So it was never a huge number of Normans that came over. I think all told it was about 10,000 compared to, I guess, a total population at that time of about 2 million. So it's a very small number. So the term the conqueror is not by how many people he brought yeah. over, but more It wasn't a mass uh, migration. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a political conquering. So he installed his people in all the important positions, both sort of secular positions, but also eventually all the important church positions. So all the authority, basically, to the Normans. So and were they still writing in Latin, the churchmen? The church were writing in Latin, though he promoted that even more. There was a tradition up to that point in England of actually using English as a language of the church. So there's a lot of religious texts at that time that were translated into English. Um, there are Old English translation, biblical translations and other kinds of church religious literature that got translated into English. Uh, the Normans did not do that. They didn't translate their own Norman French. Right. Mm -hmm. um, they used strictly Latin for that purpose. And so there was a doubling down on doing everything in Latin in terms of the church. And then in terms of the sort of political uh, literature that was written in Norman. At that point, then could be called Anglo-Norman, the particular version uh, that developed in by the, the sort of French speakers in England. And so how did the language change with the Normans? Just beyond, you know, governmental papers or whatnot, did the people also start picking up these words? They never picked up the language as a whole, but a lot of words sort of filtered through. So structurally, English stayed more or less the same. The bigger influence in terms of the structure of the language was really from the Vikings, from Old Norse. But vocabulary-wise, a lot of words got borrowed into English. And so that's one of the things that categorized, that sort of is the hallmark of Middle English, is it's got all this French vocabulary that come from, you know, French, mm -hmm. um, that come th through Anglo-Norman, through Old French, and ultimately back to, to Latin. It's not directly from Latin, though there is a lot of that too, mm -hmm. you know, particularly church vocabulary. A lot of that comes straight from Latin into English. But there's a lot of vocabulary that comes via French, first of all, through the Anglo-Norman French. And then a little later on, there's also influence from Parisian French and even other parts. So, the you know, royalty tends to sort of marry other royalty. So there is continued import of French culture. Eleanor of Aquitaine, you know, eventually comes and she brings a lot of French culture and language with her. And that's why we have the romance genre in England uh, came with her. That's later. That's later. Yeah, that's later. What's so after the Normans. I after guess. the Normans. First of all, there was more influence of that in the South, where the sort of political power was, less so in the North. So a lot more of originally Germanic stuff survived in northern dialects of English, of Middle English, um, either stuff that was originally Old English or also from the Old Norse stuff, the Scandinavian stuff. So there's a lot of uh, Scandinavian words that survived only in northern England and then kind of spread back to, uh, well, not even back because none of that was in uh, West Saxon. Uh, that Norse influence never really reached West Saxon that much. A few words here and there, but... 
Uh, it stayed pretty free from the Norse stuff at that point, but it eventually makes its way south. And through so, trades and... Through, yeah. I mean, people weren't moving around a lot in the early Middle English period, but as you get further on into, uh, you know, late Middle English and early Modern English, there's a lot more mobility. And so some of those words kind of get carried. I should say, we mentioned earlier about there being Celtic languages in Britain. There's surprisingly little influence, though, of the Celtic languages on English. There's a few sort of place name kind of things, a handful of words, not much else, though there is one theory that has been proposed by uh, one linguist, um, John McWhorter, who suggests that the use of do in English was an influence from Celtic languages. So do in terms of if we make a sort of negative sentence, we might say, I didn't walk to school today, right? rather than I walked not, which is the old way of saying it. That's how they used to say it. But now we wouldn't say that sounds kind of old fashioned. We would say I didn't walk. So using that kind of, you know, do as an auxiliary, it is according to McWhorter, that comes from the Celtic languages. And uh, the other place that we do that is for uh, emphatic statements, right? So we might say did walk to school today. So we would use that auxiliary verb to, to make it emphatic. So that's one possible survival of Celtic languages, but mostly what we see is is the influence of Old Norse and French, Anglo-Norman French. Suddenly, again, we're not still in Middle English, which means there's another progression, another something happens. Yeah. So gradually the influence of French lessens to the point where eventually, you know, the nobility are no longer learning French as a first language. And English kind of re-emerges as a language for literature and for official purposes right around the time of uh, Chaucer, the latter half of the 14th century. And Chaucer, you know, is our first great, uh, very famous English poet in Middle English. There were other writers before Chaucer, um, but they were never, you know, as widely read as Chaucer was. And so starting with Chaucer, the everyone from then on really writes only in English. You don't see French being produced in England anymore. Even gradually, Latin starts to disappear from official purposes. French holds on in one weird place in the law. So legal French, which is barely recognizable as French, but that survived for a while. Um, I guess that was the last holdout for French in England. Nobody wanted to translate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... It, because it's law, you want to have these precedents, you want to have a language stay the same so that a law means the same thing a hundred years later. So you can kind of see why it would make sense that it would hold on for a bit longer there. I know that, you know, 1500s, you're talking about a lot of different changes just in general in history. Yes. And that affected language. So maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, within about just under a hundred years uh, after Chaucer, a bunch of things happen at once. So one of the things that happens is the is a technological development, the uh, invention of the printing press, uh, which started in Germany, so with Gutenberg, but it eventually made its way to England through one printer, William Caxton, and he picked it up in, I believe in Flanders, is where he picked up that technology and decided to, I'll take this home with me to England. And then he set up his press in London and started printing English for the first time. And it's quite important where he starts his business in terms of what English looks like now. 
So remember we said that West Saxon was the sort of predominant dialect politically in England in the early Middle Ages. Well, that dialect is not the forerunner of modern English. So there's not a direct link from there to what we speak now. So a lot of the forms that we have now, it, we're not looking at sound changes that happen to West Saxon. We're actually looking at sound changes that happens to Anglian and you know London dialects, really. So after the Normans came, Wessex became politically irrelevant and the Normans set up their base of power around London. And that's why when Caxton sets up his printing press, he does so in London because, you know, this is where all the action is happening. And he was not from London himself. He was actually from the south, uh, from, I believe, from Kent. He did not want to use his own dialect of English because he thought it was rough and wouldn't be understood by a lot of people. He specifically thought very hard about, well, what dialect should I write English in? What dialect should I print English in? Um, and, you know, he wrote about this problem. Uh, he told this story about the eggs, basically. The story goes that someone from the north, uh, a trader, uh, a merchant, was in London and trying to purchase some eggs for a meal. And he was asking for eggs, and the, the local woman who was selling the eggs couldn't understand what he was saying because in the South, the word is ayan, quite different. And so there was this inability to communicate until someone said, oh, he's from the North. When he says eggs, he means ayan. And so he was troubled by this problem. He knew that that was going to be an issue. So he chose to use kind of the local London dialect as his basis. But the other influence that came in there uh, was from the fact that a bunch of scribes and learned people from just a bit north of London, from the sort of, you know, East Midlands area, came into London to work in, in the chancery, producing government documents and so forth. And so a very specific style of English called Chancery English kind of developed with a lot of influence from that region north of London. And so the Chancery English is a bit of a blend of London dialects and that other dialect. And that's what then eventually came to be used in printing. It was certainly used in government documents, which would then be sent around the country for official purposes. And the books printed by Caxton and others in London kind of used this dialect and they got spread around the country and that sort of started to make English a little bit more uniform throughout England, though it never became completely uniform. So, you know, even today, if you go up north in England, the language is quite different to the point where, you know, some people in England say, oh, they can't understand northerners when they speak even though they're speaking the same language, but they find it difficult. And there's a lot of vocabulary that survives only in, say, northern dialects. Much of it's a holdover from Old Norse uh, that doesn't survive in standard English of London. But we have, by that point, something that is considered the standard dialect, even if not everyone is actually speaking it. So it was born in London, essentially. Yeah born in London and it was used for official purposes. It was used for writing, which is the important thing, so that eventually people across Britain write the words as if they were pronounced in London, but uh, even though they're pronouncing it differently when they talk, but they learn the spellings as they become standardized. They learn the spellings of the London dialect. That can make for some interesting issues. Yeah. The phonetic versus mm -hmm. the actual written document. Which is why, you know, having uh, reforming the English spelling will never work because it will only ever be able to represent one dialect. Otherwise, everyone's spelling everything the way it sounds where they're from, uh, but then it will look completely different on paper and will confuse everyone. So it has to be kind of artificial at that point. 
So that and technological change happened. Yeah. Uh, but the other sort of more linguistic change that was happening is a change in pronunciation called the Great Vowel Shift. And it's called the Great Vowel Shift because basically every vowel sound moved one space sort of further towards the front of the mouth or further up in the mouth where you kind of articulate that vowel sound. Uh, so a whole bunch of vowel sounds changed basically simultaneously. I say simultaneously, it actually took place over about 200 years, but you know, it happens as a kind of a chain shift. Do we know why it happened? Or is that one of the That's, great mysteries? It, it's hard to answer a question like why. I mean, you, you can say why all of them happen together because it's either a pull chain or a push chain, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as one vowel moves, it leaves a space open in the mouth, and so the next vowel over shifts into that space. So you can say that there was maybe one sound that triggered it, and then they all moved together, but why that one sound changed is kind of hard to answer. And so this is a change that's happening in the spoken language, not the written language. Now, the problem is when those spellings became standardized because of printing and the Chancery English, uh, the way that we spelt the vowels reflects the way they were pronounced in that one dialect at that moment, but the vowel shift continued to happen for a while, and so it eventually drifted from the spellings. So to this day, we basically kept the spellings of around the year 1500, um, so that it became standardized at that point, but uh, we've changed in our pronunciations you know, even in London, they no longer pronounce it the same way. And of course, anywhere else English is spoken, uh, you know, they already have different pronunciations anyways. So, which is why English spelling doesn't correspond to the way English sounds basically anywhere. That's why a lot of people are frustrated when they learn English. Yeah. So after the printing press, mm -hmm. then we kind of fall into, I guess, King Henry. Yeah, and King Henry VIII is right around that time. Uh, you know, we're talking sort of just a little after the War of the Roses, Henry Tudor becoming king, and then eventually King Henry VIII, who was not supposed to become king, but due to the death of his older brother, Arthur, who would have been, I guess, King Arthur II. <laughs> uh, he was supposed to become the king, but he died. Uh, and so King Henry VIII, you know, comes to the throne. There's all kinds of political and religious changes happening at that time. This is also at the same time as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and so under Henry VIII, the English church splits off from Rome. Are there linguistic changes too happening because of these changes? Yes. One of the things that the various Protestant groups wanted to do was produce Bibles in the language that the people spoke rather than in Latin. One of the goals of the Reformation was to get rid of a lot of the church hierarchy and make people's access to their religion more direct, you know, having a direct access to God. You read the Bible as something that you do at home as a part of your sort of family activity. And so instead of having this mediator always there between you and God. Or having to learn Latin. Or having to learn Latin, which, you, you know, most people couldn't do. It takes a lot of time to devote to that. So as a result of that, uh, Bibles were produced in English. Uh, there were a number of different translations that happened during the 16th century. The one that finally became the standard official Bible of England, the King James Bible, published during uh, the time of King James in 1611, in part, it was a kind of translation that was checked against early biblical languages. So they looked at the Hebrew, they looked at the Greek, but at the same time, it was influenced by other English translations that already existed. So a lot of bits in the King James Bible actually comes from other translations like the Tyndale Bible or other English Bibles from uh, earlier in the 16th century. 
So even in the Bible, there's influences from the other, other dialectical transla- differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And other translators, how they just decide to make something, you know, sound good in English. And so a lot of the famous biblical phrases that we have now have this kind of little history in terms of, you know, these various different translations being produced. And so those are the kind of two big influences that we have on modern English that come from this early modern English period is the King James Bible and Shakespeare. Yeah, because that's what everyone was reading. (laughs) Everybody wants to know about Shakespeare. We've all studied it, hopefully, in uh, high school or Mm -hmm. maybe in post-secondary. So I'm guessing Shakespeare had an influence on language. And we're not reading his plays just because they're fun. No, they were. I mean, the thing is, he was immediately popular, right? He was during his own day. He was highly celebrated. And, you know, shortly after his death, his works were published, uh, distributed, a lot of people kept reading it. People never really stopped reading Shakespeare in the same way that people stopped reading Chaucer and it would get revived later on by scholars, but it wasn't the sort of literature that a normal person would just sit down to read. Uh, but Shakespeare never stopped being popular. His plays were always being produced. People were hearing them in the theaters or reading them on the page. And so because of that continued influence, a lot of what is now standard modern English comes from Shakespeare. Uh, There were many words that he either created or wrote down for the first time. So he may have picked some words up uh, that he heard elsewhere, but he was the one that wrote it into his plays, and therefore they became standard words that everyone knew. Shakespearean. Uh, So a lot of the expressions and vocabulary and things that we now think of as basic elements of modern English come either from Shakespeare, because everyone was reading Shakespeare, or from the King James Bible, because everyone was reading the King James Bible. And so that influence continued over, you know, hundreds of years after that time. And it kind of standardized English even more. It standardized English even more, yeah. So if people read Shakespeare, they generally can understand what he's saying. Yeah. The English isn't that far off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all the elements in Shakespeare kind of became standard. Um, some of the words, you know, less relevant words may have disappeared. Uh, he was also writing at a time when certain grammatical changes were happening to the language. So, for instance, some verb forms, right? He would write something like, he doth, right? Uh, with that TH ending. He would write it both ways. So when doth was being replaced by does or hast was being replaced by has. He was using both forms interchangeably. He was being flexible. Also. He was being flexible, yeah. He's coming at this time when it's very much in flux. And so he's using both kind of indiscriminately or whatever fits best in the line or what sounds best to him. He would even in the same sentence, he would mix up two different forms, which is the only reason that we now, although it's archaic and we don't use it every day, people still know, you know, those forms, either from Shakespeare or from the Bible, right? Thou shalt not kill. Well, no one says shalt anymore, but everyone knows what it means. It's the same with Shakespeare. That is a period of transition, but what is modern English is reflected in those works. Modern English is what we speak. Yeah. But modern English, it still has a shift from Shakespeare, as you've said. Mm -hmm. And some of that shift would have happened due to other historical things that might have happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Like Britain expanding their empire, maybe? Yeah, so again, that's the other big historical thing that happens right around the same time. uh, Europeans started colonizing countries around the world. It was right around Shakespeare's time that England set up its first colony in North America. Uh, Jamestown kind of fell apart, but was soon to be um, followed by other settlements. 
And so American English has its origin at that period, during the time of Shakespeare, um, right at the end of his life, basically, is when those colonies were starting to be set up. So Shakespeare, in the play The Tempest, there is a reflection of a ship. The story of the shipwreck in The Tempest seems to have been inspired by a ship that was going to the Jamestown colony, and that's his last play. So it's right at the end of his lifetime that, that those colonies are being kind of set up. And that's sort of around uh, King James I, I guess. And so gradually over the next, you know, couple hundred years, colonies are growing in various parts of the world. So certainly once these colonies become, you know, sort of kind of isolated, uh, as, say, the colonies in North America are, the language develops separately from the language. I mean, there's still some movement back and forth but not a lot. And so some of the aspects of English that were preserved in one place, either in England itself or in one of these colonies, could be lost in the you know, other version. And so it's not just that American English kind of diverges from British English, it's that they both diverge from a common ancestor. And so there are a lot of things in American English that, you know, Brits say, oh, that's so American. Well, they were in fact originally English from England that got lost in England, but was preserved in American English. So it's better to think of it as them both diverging from a single ancestor rather than, uh, you know, American English or whatever being a divergent form or something, because that's not really how it works. So England evolved on its own. It evolved on its own, and American English evolved on its own. And then Canadian? And Canadian English a little later, which was highly influenced by American English, actually, um, although it remained a British colony for a lot longer. Because of the American Revolution, there were many people who were loyal to Britain, the Loyalists, so they kind of left the American colonies and moved up north, bringing American English into Canada. And so the English spoken in Canada from Ontario West is heavily influenced by American English. Less so if you go towards the East, though, of course, there's this whole region that doesn't Microcosm. speak. Microcosm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, well, and there's a region in between, right, that yeah. sort of keeps them separate. You've got Quebec in the middle. And so the English from Ontario West is kind of similar, but the English on the other side of Quebec uh, is sort of isolated. And then you have Newfoundland. And then you have Newfoundland, which doesn't come into Canada until uh, the 20th century. So that's probably the most different form of Canadian English, uh, which preserves a lot of Irish elements, uh, because there were a lot of Irish uh, settlement there. And Nova Scotia. And Nova Scotia, a lot of, a lot of Scottish elements. Mm -hmm. And the Acadians, mm -hmm. yep. the French. With the French. So a lot of Canadians like to feel that, oh, well, you know, we don't speak American English. You know, we're closer to Britain. And they feel that way because, you know, Canadian English spelling norms are a lot more like British spelling system because American English specifically reformed its spellings. Uh, Noah Webster, the great dictionary writer, proposed a whole bunch of changes to American English and spelling. American. And he was American. Mm -hmm. And so that happened a bit later, though, after the American influence on Canadian English. So we never got those spellings. We maintain the old, basically the old British spellings. But in terms of the spoken language, it's very much closer to American English. The vocabulary, right? Think of the, all the sort of car-related terms, right? Don't have a boot. We have a trunk. We don't have a bonnet. We have a hood. Um, so all this vocabulary, we kind of side with American English. And our pronunciation is much closer to American English, uh, varieties of American English than British English. So uh, I'm sorry to say, but Canadian English is closer to American English than well, we British. Well, we are part English. of North America. We are so. part of North America. 
And yeah. maybe for somebody who's not North American, when you say American, you literally mean United States. United States. Which is how yeah. um, it's referred to here. Mm-hmm. It's Canadian and American, American being United States. United States. Yeah. Because some people in Europe have asked me, they're like, well, you're American. No, I'm not American. I'm Canadian. Canadian, yeah. So we use it a little differently than we what you would think. Little, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just in case somebody's a little confused at this point. Um, interestingly enough that Britain has very much its own accent and mm-hmm. North America has very much its own accent. So as you said, it, it was brought over. Have they carried some of the archaic accents? Is that how it's stayed that way? Yeah, a lot of people uh, have made the observation that pronunciations in certain parts of the United States, particularly in the South, are closer to British pronunciations of the 17th century. So British pronunciations now, there were a lot of changes to pronunciation that happened after that point, uh, like the loss of R, right? The R-less the, uh, languages where British people say ka instead of car. And so that's a later change. But a lot of the, the sort of pronunciation features that were common in British English at that earlier stage... In the 1600s. In, in the 1600s, 1700s yeah. yeah were preserved in parts of the United States, which has led some people to say, well, if you're going to read Shakespeare, you should read it with a Southern American accent. <laughs> You'll understand <laughs> which may be it going better. a little far, but... <laughs> yeah. I don't know how well the movies would go <laughs> yeah. if that was the case. Though there is a push now uh, to do Shakespeare in original, reconstructed original pronunciations. So which pronoun- would be very interesting. Which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. and it, I mean, it takes a lot of work, you know, uh, for the actors to, to learn to do that. Um, but we can tell pretty much what sounds were uh, used at that period, and we can we can... It does make Shakespeare work better sometimes in that a lot of the puns are based on pronunciations that existed then that don't exist now. So sounds that match or... Yeah, so rhymes. You know, a lot of the rhyme schemes are broken now because we pronounce the words differently. But they would have rhymed back then. So mm-hmm. to get the poetry uh, to sound the right way... That would uh, definitely be interesting yeah. then. <laughs> Absolutely. So changes in Britain, changes in North America and in different colonies, of course, mm-hmm. like in Africa or Australia, India... India. Mm-hmm. Um, so the changes in Australia, do you know a little bit about that? There's a lot of misinformation about this. So a lot of really well, let's straighten it out. <laughs> stupid claims have been made that, mm. you know, the Australian pronunciation, there's one really crazy statement that Australian pronunciations are the result of slurring your speech while drunk, which is absolute rubbish. And, That's you know, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of people have made, you know, claims about, you know, because it was originally a penal colony. And the thing is, really what's going on is the languages in these different varieties of English kind of reflect who was coming over and where they were coming from in England. So, you know, at that point, there were still very big differences between regional varieties of English in Britain. And so if you get people coming from a certain part of Britain and settling in a certain part of the world elsewhere, it's going to preserve those elements of English. Not all of British English, but particular dialects of British English. And it grows from there. And it goes from there. So if there's a lot of Scottish and Irish uh, settlement, as happened in parts of Canada, it's going to preserve those bits. And the other thing, of course, that happens is where you get people settling who are coming from multiple regions in Britain and then settling all in the same region in North America or Australia or wherever, there's a certain amount of what's called leveling happening. So a lot of the differences between those dialects that are feeding into it kind of lessen. It's a sort of blend of a couple of different dialects. Which is why the dialect differences in the colonies are less than what you see in Britain. 
uh, because in Britain, people didn't move that much. They stayed where, they lived where their parents lived. And so those regional differences were preserved for, well, quite a long time, even till today. As I say, Northern British English is quite different from dialects spoken in the South. Yeah, and you've heard people living in Britain that say, oh, I know what street he's from. Yeah. So even very slight changes in, you know, one city to the next, you know, they may both be in uh, northern England, but Liverpudlian English is very different from, say, English spoken in Lancaster or in, in uh, Manchester or whatever, right? A Manchester accent, a Manx accent is very different from a Liverpool accent, but they're not far away. You don't get that level of granularity in the former colonies, you know, United States or Canada or Australia or wherever. There's also a bigger spread. There's generally. a bigger spread, yeah. So, I mean, there are still dialect areas in those countries, but... Uh, they're much bigger and they're not as pronounced. And then I guess we jump back to our almost current timeline of mm -hmm. what we know as English. English has had a really different kind of history recently, or recent history, I guess, mm -hmm. because it's not just spoken in England, it's spoken in the colonies, but it also has kind of become something else now. Yeah, it's becoming a, a sort of global standard, what's sometimes referred to as a lingua franca, uh, a language that people have in common. So one really interesting model of, of looking at English speakers in the world is to look at it in terms of concentric circles. So at the center, you have places where English is the sort of standard first language that people like learn, Britain. like Britain or uh, Canada or the United States or New Zealand, Australia, Australia. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then you have the sort of layer around that where English is spoken uh, not as the sort of primary first language, but uh, still exists, still used because they were former colonies. And so there is a long-standing kind of political connection, cultural connection to Britain. And so the language persists in those countries, still used, you know, places like India, which was, you know, part of the British Empire. And although it's not the first language, or not the, at least not the only first language of anyone there, many people there learn English and use English. Uh, and then outside of that, uh, you've got countries that haven't had any historical connection with uh, England or any other English-speaking country, but the language is being learned because of the sort of modern interconnected world. It's kind of useful to learn that for business or for entertainment, you know, because of uh, movies or music uh, that's, you know, done in English. Uh, they want to have access to those things. And so English is learned in quite a lot of other countries that have no historical reason for it. It's just sort of the current usefulness of it. So if you go visit these countries, you're likely to find somebody who speaks English. likely to English. find people who speak English in so a lot of places in the world. So would be... Singapore. So you wouldn't expect to mm -hmm. find English in Singapore. You wouldn't imagine that there would be. Or, um, you know, Japan, a lot of people in Japan can speak English. Lots of places in Europe that weren't ever under you know, British control, it's a very common second language uh, in lots of parts of Europe. So it's become or is in the process of becoming this kind of global language. So if you talk about number of people speaking English, not necessarily as a first language, but having some English, um, it's the most widely spoken language. But if you look at actual English, you know, first language speakers, it's not the, the, the biggest language in the world. I mean, you know, you'd look to Mandarin or something like that, where there's a huge population that speaks one language. 
So it's sort of it's punching above its weight level in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's like an accessibility thing. Yes, it's an accessibility thing. Uh, it's you know it's useful to have one language that everyone can kind of you know have in common. <laughs> yeah, struggle through. Um, and it looks like English is going to be that language. I mean, you know, things can change, I suppose. Well, if anybody's a fan of Firefly, I mean, it yeah. might be, you know, English and Mandarin. You never know. You never know, <laughs> yeah. But if I had to make a bet, I would, you know, probably put my bet on English as continuing to be that, that global language for the foreseeable future. It's just used in too many ways so far. Yeah. And, you know, the cultural production just on its own makes it very attractive as, as a sort of, you know, global language because so much modern culture is being produced by the United States, Hollywood, you know, the music industry, probably less so in the music industry because, you know, there are, K-pop is hugely popular around the world, not just in Korea. Um, so there certainly is cultural production, I guess, in music anyways, happening in lots of parts of the world that are spreading uh, quite a bit. But then like the European newscasting. Yeah, BBC World Service has done a great deal to continue to support English as a sort of common language. So in Britain, there was sort of this standardized English, like the radio announcers, mm -hmm. you were saying. But there was also this thought of what is proper to do in a sentence or how it is proper to say something. Like the whole thing with dangling modifiers. People learn this in yeah. English class. They have no clue really what a dangling modifier does or what it eats for breakfast. But they're terrified mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. And, you know, that whole idea. This is all the product of the 18th century, really. At a time when people were reading a lot of Latin, and it was also the time of kind of explosion of science as well. And so because of those two influences grammarians at that time started to apply that to English. First of all, they wanted English grammar to look like Latin grammar. So a lot of those rules like don't end a sentence in a preposition or don't split in the infinitive, these are artificial rules that were never true of English before then, but were applied to English on the model of Latin to make English more Latin-like. And then but, academics took that to the other level. Like yes. Everybody has everybody to know. had to do it. Yeah. And it yeah. became socially stigmatized to not do so. And so if you wanted to sound educated, you had to, you know, not use, split your infinitives, not split your infinitives. <laughs> which is why people have problems with these rules so much because they weren't, they They're weren't not natural. They, they didn't weren't natural to the language. They were imposed mm -hmm. later. And so people struggled with them and sometimes did it the new way, but still sometimes the more traditional way. And so both kind of continued. Uh, the other thing is, as I say, this is a time of science and people started to want to make language more logical. And that's why you have things like, you know, don't use double negatives because, you know, people reason, well, if you have two negatives, it's like math. One will cancel out the other, right? Uh, whereas English traditionally had used multiple negative words in a sentence for emphasis and that was only reinforced by, by the influence of French, which also, say, you French would do that in double French. double negatives all the time. Has, has double negatives all the time. <laughs> you have no pas right there. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you can't leave you can't, yeah. one of those out in French. And because of the influence of Anglo-Norman French, that was definitely the way that English was spoken uh, during the Middle English period. So intellectually, that math problem, meaning it has to be positive now because you now did it negative twice. Mm -hmm. 
Linguistically, it Linguistically, didn't make sense. Linguistically, it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. People would use multiple negatives, sometimes more than two, to just be more emphatic, to say, I don't get no satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's an artificial rule that, that first appeared in the 18th century, uh, as the, along with these others. And, you know, I think we should feel free to ignore those supposed rules. We still fight the vestiges of that. Yes. Once in a while. Yeah, yeah. When we put it in our Word document Mm -hmm. and suddenly all these grammatical problems are popping up telling us, no, 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 don't do this. But it is. It's an issue of classism, basically, uh, because the people who were imposing these rules were highly educated. They knew Latin, right? Not everyone knows and gets to be educated in Latin. And so they were trying to distinguish the language that they spoke from the language of the common people. And so it reflects a classist attitude. Um, and it still does today. I mean, you know, people can will say, well, I can tell the difference between an educated person and an uneducated person because of, by the way that they speak. Again, it's still being used as for classist purposes. So, you know, I think we should push back on that. And, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong or inferior about the way that anyone speaks. There is no such thing as a deficient language. Or an accent. I used no. to teach uh, mm-hmm. French second language and... People kept telling me, "Well, I have an accent in French. I have an I, I have an accent." Everyone has an accent. That's I mean, the point. The accent tells you where I'm from, mm-hmm. and essentially, when you learn a second language, the accent then tells you where I've learned it or okay. how my primary language has mm-hmm. affected it or whatnot. I mean, there's no such thing as a language without an accent. No, everybody language, has an accent. Everyone has an accent. <laughs> That's what I kept telling. Them. They just have two different accents. Yeah. So, yeah, again, we shouldn't be uh, using that as a way of criticizing someone else's speech or looking down on anyone. All accents are valid. All varieties of a language are valid. All languages are valid. Um, and so I don't think it should be a question of us suppressing a particular accent or suppressing a certain dialect. Um, we should think of it more in terms of perhaps being bilingual, right? Be able to switch be able to uh, to use a particular you know dialect of your language when you're if you go to a job interview you wear formal clothes so similarly you can dress up your language uh, but if you were hanging out with your friends and going to a movie and wearing formal clothes you'd kind of look foolish by the same token you know don't feel you should be using your so-called proper language in everyday life when it doesn't matter um, people are good at being bilingual people are good at being bi-dialectal so you know we've it'll heard be fine. Of some stories i don't yeah. know if you've had some stories but a friend of mine his mom is from newfoundland mm. and when she's in our town there's no issue understanding her but the minute she calls home within seconds she's suddenly speaking her own language yeah. that she speaks with her siblings mm-hmm. and my friend says i can't understand a word she says it's a whole different language to yeah. him, but it's, it's still English. It's just a different dialect. And people are really good at making that yeah. switch. It's so I don't think you have to worry if, you know, you hear your child or whatever um, speaking in a way that's you know, non-standard or whatever. Um, they're good at, at making that switch, right? When they have to use a particular form of their language for a certain purpose, they will do so. But when they're with their friends, they're going to use the language in the way that's most appropriate there. And that's not the time to correct them. <laughs> Which is kind of like we see in texts. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to write that in an essay, hopefully. No, no well, and, and the <laughs> evidence shows that they don't. You yeah. know, David Crystal has, has looked at this specifically and he says, it doesn't happen. They, they know when to use you know, which form, what form of the language uh, that's appropriate to that circumstance. They're good at that. So let's say kids are intelligent. They can yeah, figure it out. Yeah. Don't tell them how to write when they're texting with their friends. They can manage. They'll be mm. okay. And I don't know, was there something else as part of the linguistics? 
Well, I mean, the other thing to consider, I guess, is specifically how language is changing because of the internet. Like the invention of the printing press, that had a profound effect on the English language. It was this huge information overload that happened and suddenly there was all this material being distributed and so it led to a lot of that standardization. So, I mean, it's similar to that. What we're seeing now with the internet producing just so much text being distributed very widely now, much more widely than even printed material. So it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of changes that happen uh, as a result of that. So linguistics can track these changes already? Yeah, they can. We don't have to wait uh, 50 years or... Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it's not necessarily creating a qualitative difference in the way language changes. It's more of a quantitative difference. It's more a question of how quickly language changes. So we're seeing language changes maybe happening faster than they would have before. It's not that there are new types of changes that are necessarily happening, uh, but it's just coming a lot faster. Just like the information is coming a yeah. lot faster. Yeah. It also makes it easy for, or easier for linguists to study. Right? When, you know, when you're looking at changes that were happening primarily in spoken language, it doesn't start to get written down until maybe a little bit later after the change had happened. But now a lot of these changes are happening in text. Uh, and so that evidence is there. There's huge databases of social media posts, websites, all of this sort of thing that linguists then can use and search through it and look for these changes that are happening. It comes into the spoken language as well because we have things like television and radio and whatever. We can now, in the you know past a little more than a hundred years, track those things like changes in pronunciation much more easily than we could have in the past. Because linguists now can study uh, old recordings and old movies and hear when new linguistic features pop up for the first time. So the advent of technology beyond the printing press was mm -hmm. a big boost. It was to a big boost. Yeah. Learning. Yeah. And I kind of like to ask this question, which I forgot to ask your wife. I apologize. If you had a time machine. Mm. Now, the rules are you're not going to affect the history. Right. You're not going to die unless you jump off a cliff and all that. What would be the one thing you would love to either observe, partake in? Well, I suppose if it was a question of a sort of long stay, like if I was going to go and live sure. permanently in another time. The rules are really flexible on this question. I would not pick the Middle Ages, because, you know, I'd probably I'd die of some disease uh, without antibiotics <laughs> and modern medicine and so forth. So I suppose I would pick uh, kind of Victorian England, because not only is that period interesting for itself, but it's a period when a lot of advances were made in the study of medieval languages. This is when the Oxford English Dictionary started. This is when, uh, you know, all the modern editions of, you know, Old English or Middle English were starting to be published. So you'd you know, like to be part of it that. It would be circle. interesting to work in that world mm -hmm. and do the work then and produce all these great dictionaries and, and great uh, editions and so forth. I think that's that's what I would pick. That's a fun answer. And then I like to ask, do you have a funny tidbit, a funny story or something surprising that people don't know about you? Well, I suppose a surprising thing is, so I'm trained in you know, all these languages and medieval culture and all of this stuff, but I didn't start out that way. Uh, when I was a kid, I actually wanted to go into sciences, physics or something. But when I went to university, I actually started out in a music degree. 
and I wanted to compose music and, uh, and that sort of thing and do music theory. And then I started to become interested in the historical stuff, particularly the Middle Ages. And so for a while I, th I thought, oh, maybe I'll do musicology and study music history. But at the same time, I also started to become interested in English literature. And so I switched, I was, I think, one semester course away from completing a three-year degree in music. So I never finished the music degree. And then I packed in a whole bunch of extra courses to finish an English degree and then went on in, to do medieval studies and uh, and particularly on the linguistic side. Well, music and linguistic is not that far not off. That far I know off it sounds funny, but... Yeah. So I'm actually still, you know, an avid musician and listener of music. And even though I, it didn't become my professional Who life, are your favorites? Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah. So you're not going all the way back. Well, I did. So, I mean, at the <laughs> yeah. time, I thought I wanted to work with early music um, mm -hmm. and look at, you know, the medieval and Renaissance composers. Like different instruments. Different instruments and choral music as well. I was quite interested in like the Gregorian chants, or that's, that's well, even a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So um, Palestrina was a favorite. A little bit later was um, Carlo Gesualdo, who was really unusual for his time. He used a lot of dissonance and chromaticism, um, so he was really pushing the boundaries then. And in terms of the sort of you know more kind of canonical uh, music, I really liked um, Chopin as uh, my favorite composer for the piano. Anyways, but uh, yeah, so it's a path not taken uh, but I think it maybe influenced me in some ways it's never lost right? it's never lost and I still you know play music on my yeah. own and listen to music all the time so that's good that's a, that's a really fun so tidbit. I'm a failed musician you're not a <laughs> you're a successful linguist so yes. I don't know <laughs> that was a very brief history yes. it really is a brief history there are so many oh, moving it's parts so to this. detailed and there's so yeah. many specifics you can get into about you know details about syntax changed and yeah uh, there's a lot of minutiae there so and there's some great uh, websites too like um, I know in your class you had suggested link space yes which I thought was fantastic it was yeah. so fun to watch yeah so if you want you know more of the nuts and bolts yeah. about linguistics and how language works itself that's a great place to go yeah and there's some great podcasts too. Yeah, it's a, very much a golden age for uh, linguistics podcasts. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, I mean, we have our own. Mm -hmm. uh, me and my wife that we do is more on the... Straddles two things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it talks about classics in the medieval world, mm -hmm. but also historical linguistics. Mm -hmm. um, so more on the historical side rather than the theoretical side. But there's, there's a lot of other linguistic podcasts that deal with different aspects of more theoretical stuff or contemporary issues or mm -hmm. whatever. If you want to learn more, then you'll have to go out and find those videos and podcasts. Yeah. Your podcast, mm -hmm. um, it's quite interesting when you start going into a word and then you think, oh, okay, well, that's the layer. And then you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper until you're now at the complete root of the word, which seems to have nothing to do with the <laughs> word you started with. Language so, changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is actually quite fascinating because we don't always make that connection. If anybody is interested in that kind of uh, depth of knowledge on one word or, yeah, it's, you know. It's like the archaeology yeah, of language. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, you're right. I never thought of it that way. Um, so I want to thank you for being on my podcast. Oh, well, thank you. And taking time out of your schedule and being here and... Uh, letting me look at your books once again because <laughs> I got to stare at them with your wife last time so I appreciate that very much thank you thank you <laughs> I have no other words really to say but wow so the book recommendation today is actually the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language by David Crystal Dr. Sundaram referenced him in the podcast, and it is an excellent book to have if you're interested in this topic. 
And of course, you can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at History A. It's really helpful if you can rate me on your podcasting platform. It helps people find me and that in turn helps me a lot. And of course, I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, and our kids, our family, our friends. They've all helped me adventure through history. Un grand merci.